The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If the rest of the economic aid, liquidity, any kind of aid flows to the Taliban government become impossible, then the international community will simply be lurching from one peak of a humanitarian crisis to another. You cannot run an economy on the hands out of penicillin and peanut butter. Now, the international community is only comfortable with that humanitarian aid because it can politically justify it to the US Congress, to parliaments within the European Union as it going to the Afghan people, as not punishing the Afghan people for the crimes and authoritarianism of the Taliban regime. But the reality is that if this remains the entire structure of the economic situation in Afghanistan, then we'll be in a constant crisis because the economy itself will be in a constant crisis. It will be constant dependence on the flow of international humanitarian aid without the capacity to break out of that. But because of terrorism issues and mostly because of women rights, human rights, political pluralism, authoritarian issues versus political pluralism and domestic political pressures, the rest of the economic aid remains tied up and really goes beyond simply the matter of recognition or not of the Taliban regime. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. I sat down with Vonda Felbab-Brown, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Lawfare's own Scott R. Anderson. We discussed the current situation in Afghanistan and covered a range of issues, including the Taliban government's formation since the U.S. withdrawal, the current humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, and the international community's response. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 13th, What's going on in Afghanistan? Let's jump right in. Vonda, I want to start with you. What does the Taliban's interim government look like at the moment? Well, the Taliban's government is very conservative. It is predominantly composed of Kandahari Taliban members and Haqqani Taliban members. Those are the two primarily factions. So with mostly Eastern and Southern Pashtuns, it has some uh, representatives from Tajiks and Uzbeks that are either members of the Taliban or closely linked to the Taliban. It doesn't have any women and uh, it is predominantly geared toward maintaining internal cohesion and uh, appealing to various conservative factions of the government, of the Taliban coalition, rather, I should say. Uh, so, you know, to the extent that one was hoping that the government's composition would reach out to non-Taliban segments of Afghanistan, it did not happen. That was, uh, to some extent, 
determined by the fact that the Taliban swept power so quickly and dramatically. It did not feel a need to accommodate the various power brokers associated with either the Hamid Karzai government or the Ashraf Ghani government. Their militias and uh, the Afghan security forces just melted. Nor is it reaching out to the international community, such as by having representation of the Hazaras, for example, and particularly women. The judgment that the Taliban is making is that the biggest risk to the movement and to its ability to maintain the regime in power, the Taliban in power, are factions within the Taliban. And that the safest policy, one uh, that maximizes internal cohesion, is to go for both a very conservative composition of the Taliban government that tries to give to various factions some stake and also equally tries to deploy very conservative policies. So there's a lot to get into there. And, and before we jump into the factions within within the Taliban's governing coalition, I want to ask you about the security situation. There have been a string of ISIS attacks. Last week, there was a, a bombing attack at a mosque that ISIS-K claimed responsibility for. Is there any sense that the Taliban are sort of struggling to maintain control or are these just sort of isolated attacks? Well, I don't think that we really can draw the inference right now that the Taliban are struggling to maintain control. They are very firmly in control. They face the same problem that the Afghan government had, namely to deal with uh, the Islamic State in Khorasan in urban spaces, something that I'll come to in a minute. But uh, unlike the Afghan government, uh, the Taliban was able to more or less defeat the Islamic State or at least very significantly weaken it in rural areas, its struggles with it in urban areas. So there are sort of several possible sources of internal opposition, internal armed oppositions to the Taliban from within Afghanistan. One is the Islamic State and other terrorist actors. One is opposition groups such as the Tajik-based, Panjshiri-based opposition groups around Amrullah Saleh and Ahmed Massoud. The Taliban was really able to crush them very quickly and rapidly in the Panjshir and that resistance is pretty much melted and collapsed. Potentially various militia groups. Uh, again, the Taliban has been rather effective in suppressing armed opposition. That was the case in Panjshir. There are rumors of militia oppositions in several other parts of the country, but none of this is really at the level and significance of being able to undermine the Taliban. And then from within uh, the movement itself, so the risk of factionalization. That's the issue that's of biggest concern and focus for the Taliban regime, hence the composition of the government and the very conservative policies I spoke about. Now let me return to the Islamic State. The Taliban for several years now maintained a very resolute and determined effort to fight the Islamic State. It was the entity that made the most significant progress against it, along with U.S. air power. Unlike the Afghan government that essentially at first ignored the Islamic State, hoping that it will simply battle uh, itself out with the Taliban and also hoping that its presence would keep the international community, including the United States, anchored in Afghanistan. So for a long time, the Afghan government had essentially a hands-off approach to the Islamic State. But nonetheless, when the Taliban managed to crush it in urban, uh, in rural areas, and the Islamic State moved to rural areas, to Kabul and elsewhere, then 
the Afghan government really struggled to go after the internal ISK small units hiding in urban places. And that's that same problem for the Taliban now. The Taliban built up a rather strong intelligence apparatus during the 20 years of its insurgency effort. But nonetheless, it still struggles with it. And it considers the Islamic State a a big problem. It's not friendly uh, toward the Islamic State in any way. So the attack on the Kunduz Mosque, on the Shia Mosque, it was both just devastating. Over 100 Afghan people died and about the same number of people were injured. Really terrible, catastrophic attack that is very problematic for the Taliban. It exposes the weaknesses, the holes in its central claim to performance-based legitimacy, namely that it can deliver security. On the one hand, we see dramatic decline of crime, predatory criminality in Afghanistan since the group came to power. Street crime is down. But then you have attacks like in Kunduz, uh, which shows that its control is not foolproof. And the Islamic State has been hell-bent on starting a essentially Sunni-Shia war uh, in Afghanistan, or more likely wiping out the Shia community, something the current Taliban regime at least officially says it doesn't want, and certainly the Taliban under the previous leader, Mullah Mansur, very much wanted to avoid. So on the one hand, you have the Taliban telling the Shia community that they will be protected. It, uh, for example, did provide protection during a recent Shia holiday. At the same time, there are reports of uh, Hazara people being executed, killed by Taliban members of armed thugs coming into Shia mosques. So there are these contradictions already. And on top of that, you have an attack like in Kunduz that exposes the Taliban's vulnerability to ISK actions. So how cohesive does the Taliban coalition appear to be that you spoke of a little bit earlier? Are are sort of central Taliban leaders able to implement the national policy or is there limited control among the rank and file outside of these particular factions? Well, the answer is a complex one. Uh, on the one hand, the Taliban certainly is a very centralist entity that wants a centralist government and that sets central policy. And the reason why the Taliban survived for 30 years, and if we count the Mujahideen period even longer than that, despite being hammered by the Soviet Union in the 80s and uh, since 2001 by the United States, is multifold. There's many reasons why the Taliban has been such an effective insurgency. But one uh, crucial element is uh, its ability to maintain internal cohesion and to set policies at the top level and push them down. But at the same time, the group is not unified. It's not monolithic. There are different factions. Field commanders, middle-level battlefield commanders have become greatly strengthened vis-à-vis the Rabari Shura. That's the top leadership of the Taliban in recent years. They have a lot of financial power. They have a lot of firepower. And there is a great variation among them in their opinions, predilections, uh, toward more radical, hardcore version or less so. And the Taliban, the party Shura top leadership needs to negotiate with those sheikhs, which is the term that they used um, for the military commanders. And what was happening in recent months also is that the Taliban's recruitment skyrocketed. Everyone wanted to be on the side of the victor. And so various criminal groups joined the Taliban 
young men of various kinds joining rank and file Taliban fighters um, just over this past year, including since the spring. And the control over those cadres is often much weaker. Their discipline training is much weaker. So it's a centralist government. It's one that is very focused on cohesion. Uh, it's been able to maintain cohesion, often by compromising on its relationships with the international community, with other segments, uh, population segments, interest segments of Afghanistan. But at the same time, uh, it hardly has 100% perfect control. So I want to move to the Taliban's relationship with the United States Scott, I, I have a very basic question for you. Has the United States formally recognized the Taliban as Afghanistan's government? And how would we even know if the U.S. decided to do so? So we, they almost certainly have not. We don't always 100% know when a recognition of a foreign government takes place. The kind of official or default U.S. policy as for several other countries, including the United Kingdom, who's even more expressed about it, the United States, for governmental recognition is often that they try and downplay it. This has been the case since the 1980s, kind of the post-colonial period when governmental recognition became more politically controversial in cases. There was an effort to say, look, we're not going to formally recognize or unrecognize foreign governments when there's a change in power. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to keep engaging with them. And if it gets to the point where we have to take a step that means formal recognition, We'll either do it or we won't at that point, but we're not going to make a sort of declaration of recognition. The United States, though, has stepped back from that policy in a number of cases, sometimes because it's just hard to implement because the question of recognition is so plain on its face and people are really scrutinizing U.S. behavior, sometimes because they expressly want to use the recognition determination as a policy tool, as a carrot to kind of lure a foreign regime or a foreign entity into conducting certain types of behavior. In the case of the Taliban, uh, the Biden administration has kind of found itself in the latter. Recognition has been a top order question regarding the Taliban since they took power in August, just as it was between 1996 and 2001, the last time they were in power. And the Biden administration, as well as a good chunk of the international community, has been very expressed saying, look, we're not going to recognize you, meaning the Taliban, until you meet certain benchmarks about respect for human rights, respect for international legal obligations, efforts to suppress terrorism sneak in there, particularly from the U.S. perspective, in part because of the U.S.-Taliban agreement that, that makes that a, a core tenet of their understanding. Also, that you're going to respect women's rights and uh, adopt a, a number of behaviors that we really haven't seen the Taliban uh, do, as Vanda's already described, right? It's a very conservative government, hasn't taken a lot of steps. A couple of token measures, and we've seen a lot of rhetoric, particularly from the Taliban representatives in Doha and elsewhere that are kind of projecting messages and messaging out to the international community, but we haven't seen a lot of concrete steps there. And so because the Biden administration is pretty express about the fact that recognition is going to involve evaluation of those factors and numerous times has said, we don't plan on moving forward with recognition anytime soon. It doesn't appear that they have done that. It's worth noting at one point, Secretary of State Blinken did say during congressional testimony that the Taliban is the de facto government of Afghanistan. That can sometimes be used as a kind of strictly descriptive term, meaning that they're a lot like the government and function that way. There's also a technical legal meaning there related to recognition, where that can sometimes mean that the United States acknowledges that regime as having some authority under international law to speak for the state, even though it doesn't fully recognize it de jour as having the full range of 
rights on obligations and capacities that is usually given to foreign governments. In my mind, it's really not clear that Blinken was using it in that latter technical context, which isn't a distinction that the United States usually like makes publicly or categorically very often. Instead, it seems much more likely to me that he meant that in a descriptive context to say like, yeah, yeah, the Taliban works a lot like a government in Afghanistan, but we don't recognize it as such. That said, just because the United States doesn't recognize the Taliban doesn't mean they don't deal with it. We've seen them have negotiations with them on multiple occasions, pretty sustained diplomatic engagement. We uh, understand some foreign assistance for the United States. We're going to Afghanistan, at least the people there, although there's an effort to figure out how to do that in a way that doesn't compromise the position on regards to the Taliban as not being the government of Afghanistan. It poses a lot of logistical challenges, but right now it really does not seem like the United States has recognized the Taliban. And, and I suspect that position is going to continue for a good time moving forward. As I wrote in a piece for Lawfare maybe a month or so ago now, you know, really we saw the United States always say recognition is a vague possibility if certain conditions are met, but without any taking any steps towards that throughout the 1996 to 2001 period, became less likely after 1998, but still was in the conversation. And the similar conditions are here. Now the Biden administration faces an incentive to leave it on the table as a possibility to serve as a carrot, but it's going to be really hard pressed to actually take that step while the Taliban hasn't made any credible steps in a direction of meeting these different conditions it's laid down and that the international community has also backed it up on. So barring some sort of major capitulation from the Taliban on another issue of interest, such as cooperation against terrorism in the country or major progress towards those fronts, it seems like for the foreseeable future, the United States is going to be happy not recognizing the Taliban and finding other ways to engage them despite not pursuing that step. So the U.S. met with the Taliban a few days ago. Scott, what was what was the outcome of that meeting and, and what should we make of it? So, you know, this this meeting, I think, is is kind of a an initial first test step. You know, negotiations these days, particularly between two groups that are traditionally adversarial, rarely are kind of one off events. Instead, it's a process with numerous phases and a lot of confidence building measures. And I think it's good to see this as something of a confidence building measure. We saw a pretty high ranking U.S. party, but not, you know, at a chief of state level or anything along those lines consisting of, I believe, the deputy special representative for Afghanistan reconciliation participated, notably not Zalmay Khalil. Azad, who is still the special representative, but is kind of a controversial figure. So he did not participate for whatever reason, but still is, is sometimes a useful interlocutor with the Taliban uh, by many accounts. We saw David Cohen, deputy director of the CIA, reportedly participate, a couple of senior USAID and other officials, kind of covering the broad range of potential issues that the United States has with the Taliban and with Afghanistan, meaning foreign assistance issues, diplomatic issues around you know getting SIV applicants and other Afghan nationals in whom the United States has an interest, as well as the remaining U.S. nationals of whom there are a substantial number in Afghanistan out if they want to leave. And then big one is intelligence cooperation, trying to find a way to move forward on some sort of unified effort against terrorism. I, my guess is maybe there was a little bit of a, a pipe dream that maybe the Taliban would show a little more receptivity on that front, which is why perhaps Deputy Director Cohen joined particularly in the light of recent ISIS attacks, which were pretty devastating, pretty large scale. You know, there's a recently a pitch to be made there that some intelligence cooperation against ISIS might be reasonable, an effort to build in a bigger counterterrorism relationship. The reports, at least public statements from the Taliban after the meeting was that, that, that no such cooperation is going to happen. But the United States did indicate that it's open to providing certain types of foreign assistance to the Afghan people but not necessarily do the Taliban directly in an, an, an effort to resist. There seems to be a, a desire to resist channeling it directly through the Taliban. Big question as to how 
easily that will be accomplished. And that fits into a broader picture we've seen about an ongoing summit um, that's now ongoing between multilaterally between the United States and a lot of traditional partners kind of in the G20, uh, although notably not including regional actors like Pakistan and Iran. I don't believe in China or Russia are, are participating either, although they may have been invited at one point. I can't recall. Fonda may know better than I do. But around foreign assistance issues right now, trying to craft a bigger multilateral foreign assistance package to bring to Afghanistan, but that isn't channeled through the Taliban so as to reinforce or strengthen their governance and their authority in the country. And that also doesn't involve releasing Afghan assets being held by the United States and certain other countries overseas. That's something the United States would only normally do to a recognized Afghan government. They've resisted taking that step, even though the Chinese government and a few others have called on them to do so. So recognition is, again, posing obstacles here, but there are ways to channel a lot of this assistance and other measures around it. The question then becomes like, well, who are your local partners if you don't have a government on the ground? Who can you actually work with reliably? And again, it becomes a very logistically potentially complicated question, particularly in a country like Afghanistan, where uh, under the Taliban rule, pose a lot of security challenges to humanitarian organizations and others that would normally be involved in delivering this assistance. If I can come here on, on these issues, Bryce, that um, Scott just start, started talking about U.S. engagement with the Taliban and the international summit. So the United States is still primarily focused on talking with the Taliban about getting out the remainder of Afghans that qualify for SIV visas. And that uh, really preoccupies much of the U.S. diplomatic efforts with the Taliban even though issues of terrorism come in. That's the area where there, in fact, is the greatest prospect for some sort of working relationship between the United States and the Taliban, at least as it pertains to the Islamic State in Khorasan. It's far more difficult with respect to Al-Qaeda and other militant groups where the Taliban's message to the U.S. has been consistent for the past 20 years and continues to be essentially the same message that the Taliban is giving to China with regard to ETIM, the Uyghur militants. Namely, that the Taliban will control them on Afghan territory and that uh, it will not allow them to conduct terrorist attacks out of Afghanistan abroad. It's been the same message to the Taliban. It's, again, partially driven by the Taliban's internal uh, cohesion considerations, as well as external audiences. In this case, not uh, external governments, but external jihadic groups. Uh, many uh, of uh, Al-Qaeda, ETIM members, IMU, the Uzbek uh, militant group members have been living in Afghanistan for two, three decades. They are intermarried into Afghan families, into Taliban families. And the Taliban also owes uh, all kinds of debts to the global jihadi community for its support in fundraising. So the Taliban feels very insecure from internal cohesion perspective to be moving against those groups. But at the same time, this message that it will control the groups, that it will not allow attacks to take place abroad, is the message that the Taliban was also using in the 1990s and failed to deliver in that very dramatically with respect to al-Qaeda. The cooperation on other issues is, is far tougher because international aid has been really blocked up and linked on issues related to UN sanctions on the Taliban and women's rights, human rights and political um, pluralism. 
the recent 1 billion of aid that the European Union just confirmed today and a prior very small release of humanitarian aid by the United States of about $64 million are really only about humanitarian aid. They are channeled, as uh, Scott mentioned, through international organizations that are on the ground in Afghanistan, and they are providing essentially food, shelter, medicine to avoid catastrophic humanitarian crisis of tens of thousands of people dying this winter. So the international community is trying to avoid both refugee flows and the humanitarian crisis like we are witnessing in Ethiopia's Tigray. The economy is absolutely in a tailspin. Prices of um, essentials, food, medications, fuel have increased dramatically. Tajikistan, which is on a semi-war footing with Afghanistan, is threatening to cut off electricity to Afghanistan because the Taliban doesn't have money to pay since broader economic aid still continues to be locked up abroad. Now, we're talking about a country where 75% of the operating budget of the previous government of Ashraf Ghani came from foreign aid. So what the international community is trying to devise is providing food and medication directly to people. But the rest of the economy is suffering terrible meltdown. There's a huge liquidity crisis. And so here is a fundamental dilemma. If the rest of the economic aid, liquidity, any kind of aid flows to the Taliban government become impossible, then the international community will simply be lurching from one peak of a humanitarian crisis to another. You cannot run an economy on the hands out of penicillin and peanut butter. Now, the international community is only comfortable with that humanitarian aid because it can politically justify it to the U.S. Congress, to parliaments within the European Union as it going to the Afghan people, as not punishing the Afghan people for the crimes and authoritarianism of the Taliban regime. But the reality is that if this remains the entire structure of the economic situation in Afghanistan, then we'll be in a constant crisis because the economy itself will be in a constant crisis. It will be constant dependence on the flow of international humanitarian aid without the capacity to break out of that. But because of terrorism issues and mostly because of women's rights, human rights, political pluralism, authoritarian issues versus political pluralism and domestic political pressures, the rest of the economic aid remains tied up and really goes beyond um, simply the matter of recognition or not uh, of the Taliban regime that uh, Scott talked about. It also has to do with uh, UN sanctions and more broadly with the sort of deep Western dislike of the policies of the Taliban regime. My final comment here is that there is a good reason why Russia, Iran, China did not show up. First of all, this was a G20 meeting where the aid was negotiated, so no place for Iran in the first place, but certainly for Russia and China. But all those countries essentially are not focused on the same women rights, political rights, human rights issues. Their primary focus is to avoid an economic meltdown in Afghanistan, to avoid massive flows of refugees, and they're pushing for an economic engagement with the Taliban. 
not necessarily for uh, recognition of the Taliban. No one has yet put itself on the front to say the Taliban government should be recognized, but they don't want sanctions as an economic leverage. And so there are these questions, both in the United States and in the international community, as to what sanctions can be used for, economic and legal sanctions, what is the maximum size uh, of, of changes from the Taliban that can be anticipated? Can economic sanctions be used to bring the Taliban regime down? And uh, would that, in fact, produce better outcomes than the very difficult situation right now? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scott, you, you, you touched on that briefly when talking about the recognition question, but I'm curious, just as a follow-up to that, has the Biden administration indicated any shift in position in terms of the economic sanctions question that was just brought up? Not that I'm aware of in the immediate term, depending on how it's structured, providing different types of foreign assistance, even things that are widely might be seen as humanitarian assistance might require certain types of licenses, particularly depending on who it's channeled through um, or the steps that people delivering it might need to be taken that might result in you know revenue going back to the Taliban, for example, if they were to be taxing an area or putting in toll roads and things like that. So you may see some budging there as they kind of struggle to a solution. And we have to remember, like, you know, sanctions, there are multilateral sanctions against Taliban and various actors in the Taliban. There are some of the densest ones are bilateral between the United States, but they almost all have a capacity for licensing for kind of one-off exceptions that can be pursued with the international ones tend to be kind of broad in scope um, without as much granularity, but they provide enough space for individual states to do a little more fine graining around those sanctions. And in all honesty, you know, humanitarian groups who operate in this area sometimes accept that they run the risk of potentially technically violating sanctions laws, but they do it anyway because they understand clearly this is something that the United States government, the international community wants to see happens, and they're very unlikely to be prosecuted by the Department of Justice if they have to pay road tolls to the Taliban while delivering foreign assistance. In terms of broader sanctions relief, it's something that, again, we're seeing wrapped up to this conversation about the release of Afghan state assets, that this is part of the effort to encourage some sort of economic engagement, lighten the load a little bit in terms of restoring the Afghan economy. And I think Vonda's right. It doesn't have to be tied to recognition necessarily, but it it also reinstates the idea that it, it restores economic flows in a way that insofar as the Taliban has captured the state apparatus will 
provide revenue to them, things like that through taxation, other things like that. Um, so there's 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 some connection there, but it's fairly indirect. I, I haven't seen any steps on that, but there's more pressure being brought on the Biden administration, uh, at least that I'm aware of. I don't, I don't believe we've seen any significant steps in that direction. And I would just add here that the Biden administration uh, is really still given very little aid, only $64 million. And the sense is that the domestic political environment is very difficult in addition to the pressure leverage diplomacy. So one of the key questions is whether there will be a mechanism to provide salaries for Afghan government employees through the international aid. Will, um, for example, the international NGOs that are going to be administering the one billion of aid that the European Union just approved be able to pay somehow salaries of teachers, salary of health workers in government hospitals, in clinics? If not, if the situation continues, as has been the case since August, that government employees have not been paid, that has both dramatic consequences for running a country, but it also has dramatic humanitarian consequences because uh, the government uh, remains the most significant employer in Afghanistan other than uh, the opium poppy economy. And uh, that's the case even after the Afghan security forces collapse and are no longer in existence. So the rest of government employees is still the largest employer. And that's also true about women. By far more women in Afghanistan have employment in schooling than in any other sector of Afghanistan. So if the international community is focused on finding a way to channel some income to women, assuming that the Taliban is going to be willing to maintain at least segregated school for girls. That's now the case for primary education. We see some opening of secondary education schools, like in Kunduz, for example. The women teachers will need to be paid. That means that the international community will need to find a way to pay them through NGOs, or the Taliban will need to be able to earn some money to be paying government employees. So there are very many really difficult issues of, on the one hand, trying to maintain no economic flows to the Taliban, even though that means that no money is coming to employees of the Afghan government, including women. But also raise here that there is really a sort of big dichotomy often in policy advocacy and preferences among actors. Many Afghan diaspora are um, advocating for maintaining strong maximalist sanctions on the Taliban regime, either as a way to bring it under, to make it collapse, or uh, as a way to see the Taliban radically shift its positions. Many people who are in Afghanistan, who are left uh, in Afghanistan, Afghans, on the other hand, don't want to see the economic sanctions and don't want this blanket nature of economic sanctions beyond medication, shelter and food because they have to live in the collapse economy and they have no way to get money and to eat. So I want to I want to ask you for a second, Vonda, about Pakistan. What has the Pakistani government's relationship been like with the Taliban's government? With the Taliban's government or the Taliban overall? Uh, you know, the, my, my question here uh, sort of prefaces uh, the issue that, of course, Pakistan has been direct, close, intimate sponsor of the Taliban for the past 30 years, providing it with intelligence, weapons, financial assistance since the early 1990s, really without interruption until the Taliban's victory in August of this year. 
despite the tremendous U.S. efforts to dissuade Pakistan from doing so, both pressure and inducements such as a strategic relationship between the United States and Pakistan and economic aid. So neither the pressure and the, the coercive leverage nor the friendly gestures really changed the behavior of Pakistan and its uh, coddling and support for the Taliban. That said, there are real differences among the Taliban in uh, how they see Pakistan. The eastern Taliban around the Haqqanis are very close to Pakistan, particularly uh, Pakistan's ISI, the intelligence uh, services of the country. On the other hand, Kandahari Taliban, both those around uh, Mullah Baradar and Mullah Yaqub, uh, tend to be far more leery of Pakistan, often see Pakistans as encroaching, interfering in Afghanistan's internal affairs, and there is um, often no love lost between the Kandahari factions of the Taliban and Pakistan. The same was also true about Mullah Mansour, the previous leader of the Taliban. So, you know, on the one hand, Pakistan has sought a very close role in managing the Taliban regime. It is very pleased by the fact that the Haqqanis obtained four very important positions uh, in the government, including Sirajuddin Haqqani being the Minister of Interior, which both allows Pakistan to shape internal security policies, including vis-a-vis other militant actors, allows them access to intelligence files that were left in Afghanistan as the country was collapsing. Another Haqqani family member is a minister for refugees. That's very grating uh, to the West, but again is very clearly comfortable for Pakistan because it allows Pakistan to shape refugee policy and maintain control over Afghan refugees and diasporas, or at least attempt to maintain control over Afghan refugees and diasporas. But none of this has been easy. Um, Pakistan has, for example, sought to provide assistance to restructure the uh, Afghan military services. And the Minister of um, Defense is uh, Mullah Yaqub. He's not been thrilled by that idea at all. There's been considerable hands um, of engagement and relationship. There are lots of other discomforts with uh, Pakistan's actions among various uh, of the particularly Kandahari factions of the Taliban. So it's hardly a relationship of either direct control by Pakistan of the Taliban or just a happy, easy marriage between the two. And that's notwithstanding the fact that Prime Minister Imran Khan applauded and cheered the victory of the Taliban and used phrases like that Afghanistan was finally liberated, something that was quite a bit of shock for (laughs) the rest of the international community, uh, those statements by Prime Minister Imran Khan. So my last question is, is for both of you. What are you watching for in the coming months, either news coming out of Afghanistan or news on the diplomatic front in terms of the international community response? Scott, let's let's start with you. Sure. I mean, probably one of the from the perspective of recognition uh, and an event that might force a few states to show a few more of their cards in regards to where their limits are in recognition is at some point in the next few months, uh, but probably really middle of next year, middle of next year, a bit more, we will ha- likely have a fight at the credentials committee of the General Assembly of the United Nations. Um, we have seen representatives from the Taliban submit a letter claiming that they are, should be allowed to represent Afghanistan. The current kind of incumbent representative 
that has been represented Afghanistan for the Ghani government also has indicated that they intend to seek to continue to represent Afghanistan before that body. Students of history may recall that from 1996 to 2001, the previous government, the non-Taliban government, the Rabani government, Afghanistan actually was allowed to keep the seat of the United Nations and continue to represent Afghanistan uh, instead of the Taliban, not necessarily because the Credentials Committee decided they were the right representative, but mostly because the Credentials Committee kept saying, well, we don't want to decide this matter, so let's just stick with the incumbent and then we'll come back to it later. And they never came back to it. We could see the same thing happen here, but the case uh, for the incumbent is weaker, probably substantially weaker, uh, because there's really it's not clear to what extent there are remnants of the Ashraf Ghani government still claiming to represent Afghanistan and certifying this person as their representative. There have been in the past, we've seen the, you know, I think first Vice President Salah at one point was out there making claims along these lines. He may still be. We'll see how credible they are when this debate kind of comes to the fore procedurally in the United Nations, which is still a little ways away. Aside from that, you know, it is going to be kind of, I think, a slow watch to see what is going to lead to sorts of changes in the current positions of the United States, the international community and Afghanistan. Personally, I tend to think that there are enough kind of pressure release valves that will they will be able to find without forcing their hand on recognition anytime in the near future, which are things like foreign assistance that can be delivered without recognition, like humanitarian assistance, things along those lines. The you know real question will be, well, if if you get to a, a forcing moment, it will look like something like uh, either major negotiations breakthrough or some sort of other major crises, particularly some sort of dissolution or rise of another faction in Afghanistan, which are, I think are all possible, but there's no signs of them being particularly likely in the near future. So instead, we're going to see a kind of, I think, a sustained position among these parties until we get to the point where there's, at some point, there are going to be enough incidents and challenges and obstacles that the United States and other states are going to face over the lack of a recognized government in Afghanistan, whether it's dealing with litigation, which Afghanistan has a party in the United States and other countries overseas, whether it's dealing with what to do with ambassadors and diplomats and diplomatic properties, whether it's, you know, seeking cooperation on a variety of fronts without, you know, being clear who is actually can authorize things in Afghanistan or related to Afghanistan. You know, these are all small questions, but they do tend to add up over time and tend to uh, in certain prior cases, such as the post-revolutionary Iranian government in the 1980s, you know, eventually kind of lead the United States to say, okay, we understand this regime is here. Maybe we don't like it, but we're going to start dealing with them as if they're the government and acknowledge them as such, usually quietly, but acknowledge them as such. But again, I, I still think that's a ways away at this point. What we are going to see, though, hopefully, and I think the Biden administration has, has set itself up to this and, and wisely, is continued diplomatic engagement. Um, we've seen the essentially kind of remnants of Embassy Kabul, the core political unit, relocate to Doha. The former DCM in Kabul, Ian McCrary, I believe his name is, is kind of heading up a new interest section there. It's not clear exactly how it's structured or how it's related to Embassy Doha, but nonetheless, they have a presence there that's still engaging with the Taliban who also have representatives in Doha with the help of the Qatari government, who have been very effective interlocutors in this front. So, you know, you're going to see these continued negotiations and discussions like we saw these last few weeks. And I think hopefully we will see moments of breakthroughs, able ability to find certain areas of common ground, particularly around humanitarian relief and assistance. But, you know, there's no real signs of any major changes or breakthroughs at the current status quo coming in the near term. So I think what we're seeing now is likely to be what it kind of looks like, at least for the next 
you know, several months or, or year um, before we see either party begin to feel the need to budge in one direction or another. I think that probably holds for the international community too, China and Russia being the two kind of outliers uh, and Pakistan, um, you know, potentially moving in towards recognition faster than the rest of the international community. But I don't think that many other states will follow. And Vonda, what are you watching for? Uh, one of the things that I am watching is really how bad is the humanitarian uh, situation going to be over the next coming weeks and months? How much the aid channel through NGOs directly to Afghan people will be sufficient to offset the tailspin that the country is in? And that will then force the deeper reckoning that the international community has to engage with of how long it wants to maintain those blanket sanctions and what it wants to, uh, blanket sanction exempting humanitarian aid, but sanctions on other assets and aid to the Taliban regime and to what purposes. Are we going to be in a situation like with Venezuela, for example, where very robust Western sanctions are placed on the regime, yet the regime is able to survive through illicit income while uh, the economy remains moribund and, and continues to be really in a critical situation? Are we going, or North Korea is another good example. And what is that then going to do to the asks that the international community will be asking of the Taliban? So the, the asks are women rights, human rights, political pluralism, and of course, uh, counterterrorism. But what does it mean in practice? For a while, the wording was restoring or uh, preserving the gains of the past 20 years. To me, that is completely infeasible. It's just very unrealistic that the Taliban would ever concede to anything like that. Right now, the Taliban regime is somewhere between its rule of uh, 1990s and Saudi Arabia. The maximum, I believe, we can achieve with the Taliban, even through maintaining uh, economic sanctions of very crippling nature, is uh, Iran-like regime with the extent and limitations on freedoms, women presence in public life that we see there with the similar system of um, executive legislative power underneath the Supreme Council. That is sort of the, the maximum I envision we could push the Taliban toward. And even that, in my view, will take many years and will ultimately far more depend on internal coalitions within the Taliban rather than on external pressure and on pushback from Afghan local communities against the Taliban rule rather than on external pressure. And so if we don't see that, you know, are we heading for years into this essential limbo of terrible economic situation that is just being relieved in acute crises as a result of humanitarian aid, but that is perpetually stuck in that because there is no legal economic activity going on in the country. What does that mean for the life of Afghan people? Um, even if the Taliban allows some schools, but no teachers are being paid, what does it mean? Or will we work out a mechanism in which channeling money to international NGOs will then be the source of income for uh, Afghan government employees? Or are we going to have private schools essentially around Afghanistan and community-based schooling because uh, government teachers, even male government teachers, won't be paid because the Afghan uh, Taliban government won't have money? So what, what we are seeing right now with the aid and the engagement that is still principally centered on very limited set of issues, 
is really just putting a band-aid on the enormous bleeding wounds uh, in Afghanistan. And you know, I think there is a hope in the United States, in Europe, that in about a year, year and a half, the Taliban will come begging on its knees and be willing to radically change in, in positions that I am not sure is, in fact, the likely outcome. And the reckoning of how policy will remain or be shaped is yet to happen. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Kara Schillen, Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.